you got your Bibles, open up to 1 Kings chapter 19. That's where we're going to be at this morning. This morning, this message, in a lot of ways, is very personal. In a lot of ways, I found myself learning every one of these lessons because I found myself traversing some very difficult times in my life. We faced a lot of difficulties recently. In fact, uh, as the old statement goes, life is not a bed of roses. I wish everything went good. I wish they were always things headed in the right direction. I wish that we never had to suffer loss or go through difficulties. And yet many of us face those difficulties right now. We experienced just a couple of weeks ago the loss of a young man. Very tough. And I'm not even his family, but I know how hard it is to see stuff like that. And I know that it has to be unbelievably difficult for a family. We've seen people that have been given diagnoses that they did not expect, that they weren't given long to live, that they've had to face immense difficulties. Some of you have had problems with children. You've had problems with jobs. Some of you have had problems in your marriage. And there's just so many things. And we get into the cave, and there are so many things that can happen while we're in the cave. And depression is one of those things. It is so easy to get depressed, and I can share this from a personal side because when I was 18 years old, I was diagnosed as depressed. That was the diagnosis that was given to me after I'd been in a car accident when I was 15 years old. And so the doctor thought, well, you need to be on medication. Well, I never got put on medication. I've never taken any medication for it. What I have is I have, the, to me, the best medication of all, which is the Word of God. And when I was 18, that's what I dug into. And that's not to say that I don't deal with it from time to time. It's not to say that I don't get depressed from time to time. I can feel when it's coming on. And I can tell you that when it comes on, it's easy to want to give in. And it is easy to want to give up. And it is easy to forget the lessons that you learn in the cave. And it's easy to forget to put your focus on God. It is easy for all of those things to happen. It is easy for us to get disgruntled. It is easy for us to get out of church. It is easy for us to turn and stop praying. It is easy to get out of the Word of God. It is easy when you're in the cave to just want to give up, shut off the lights, and pray that God takes you on. It can happen. You may say, well, I'm a strong Christian, and I've never experienced that. Well, praise God. Praise the Lord that that has not happened to you. But I'm going to tell you, it is through those battles in the cave that God has made me stronger than I have ever been. And it is through those caves and those battles that God has strengthened my faith in such a way that I really believe it can't be shaken. And when it does feel like it's about to shake, I remember these lessons from the cave. So look with me in 1 Kings 19. I'm going to read the whole story. And then we're going to learn nine lessons from the cave today. We begin in verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also if I do not take your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under, down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die. And said, it is enough now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked, and there by his head 
was a cake baked on the coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of the food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of God came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. And he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, but after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 18, yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. We're going to learn nine lessons today. You may say, well, good gracious, I've never heard a nine-point sermon. Well, get ready. I've been gone a week. (laughs) First five lessons we're going to learn are about Satan's tactics. We're going to learn about Satan's tactics, the first five lessons. So let's look first The first one's found in verse 1, and that is he attacks after a victory. It says, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with a sword. If you know 1 Kings 18, you know that that is where Elijah faced off against the 450 prophets of Baal, as well as the 400 prophets of Asherah, which are oftentimes left out. But he faced off against these prophets and these idol worshipers, and they decided that they would make a sacrifice. They would build an altar. They would put their offering on the altar, and they would call down and ask for God to answer by fire. And the God who answered by fire was the one who was victorious. Well, Elijah allowed them to go first, and so they spent hours and hours and hours praying and crying out to their God to come down and answer with fire. In fact, they cried out in such a way they even cut themselves, and so they would bleed all over their sacrifices, expecting their God to answer because he was saddened for what they were willing to do. Elijah waits until finally he sees that they're pretty much done, and he creates his altar, he puts his sacrifice on it, and then he just dumps water all over it again and again and again and again. And remember, they're in a drought, so there probably wasn't a lot of water left. And he cries out to the God of heaven. And he says, God, won't you just show them who you are? And God sends fire from heaven, comes down, consumes their sacrifice. And after that's done, they kill all the false prophets. Elijah has just won the greatest victory. One of the greatest victories we ever see in all of the word of God. You would think he would be on an ecstatic high. And then he goes up to the mountain and he prays. And he says, God... It's not rain for three and a half years. And he prayed. And he goes up there and he prays again. And all of a sudden he sees this hand. And so he's told to go down and tell Ahab, hey, guess what? You better get home because what it's about to rain, it's really about to rain. And boy, did it flood. And it rained like it had never rained before in that land. And God brought down the rains upon them and God blessed them and God erased the drought right there in one fell swift swoop. And you would think that Elijah was on an ultimate high and all of this happens and things are going well. And Elijah is on the top of the mountain and then he comes down and Satan's ready to attack. Why? Because after you win, you're less likely to believe the enemy still wants to come after you. 
But it's because that's when you let down your guard, the enemy attacks the best. He loves to come after us right after a victory. I think about Joshua after Joshua defeated Jericho. He walked around the walls several times all throughout that week. And that last day he walked around it seven times. And the walls fell flat and the enemy just fell before them. They went in there and they ransacked and destroyed all of Jericho. But then you come to chapter 7. And you got Achan who took some stuff that he wasn't supposed to take. And God defeated them before a smaller foe called I. I think about the case of David when David stood before Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. He faced a great giant and won a victory. And right after that, in chapter 18, Saul's trying to kill him. Because Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. And Saul didn't like that David got more credit. I think about Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapters 1 through 3, where Nehemiah was called by God to go and rebuild the walls of Israel. God had given him a God had blessed him, and the king allowed him to go back and gave him everything that he needed to rebuild the walls. And as he begins to rebuild the walls, there comes some problems from without and problems from within in chapters four through six. I think about Jesus in Matthew 4, after he had fasted for 40 days, he had won the victory, had been tempted throughout that time, and then at the very end, Satan continues to tempt him with three last things before he finally eats food. I just want you to understand that if you've experienced a victory, Don't just stand back and think, we won, it's over, it's great, I'm ready. The problem is, is you drop your shield and that's when Satan attacks. That's when he comes after you because you least expect it. Satan begins to work overtime when you've succeeded. He works overtime because he can't stand to lose. Elijah would face this with certainty. I faced this before. In fact, at my last church, we had been there for three years, and God had been blessing tremendously. God had blessed in such a way that at that church, we had baptized so many people. The church was growing. They had their best year of giving they had ever had in their history. We were paying off debt. We were fixing up the building. Everything was headed in the right direction. And then sin came into the camp. Sin came into the camp with my deacons, and I confronted them, and I thought, Lord, I'm doing what you told me to do, and I confronted them, and for the next two years, they made my life miserable. For the next two years, I had to endure meetings with deacons and meetings with people at the church that they had gossiped about me and tore me down and sit in three and four hour meetings where they did everything they could to destroy me. And I remember sitting in those meetings and thinking to myself, Lord, the church was full. We were actually talking about having to go to two services. Giving was great, everything, but I knew something was wrong and I had to do what you told me to do. And I did it. And now look at what's happening. It's all crumbling down around us. Why? Why are you allowing this to happen? And I remember I I spent many a day just in tears praying and crying out to God, asking him, God, why, why, why when things were going so well, why when we were right there in the midst of success and you were blessing this church, all of a sudden are you allowing it to crumble down around us? And it's because when you go through a victory, people become calloused. And they become indifferent. 
And they get to a point where they just expect it to happen and they forget to seek the face of God and they turn inward and forget about focusing outward. I'm telling you, Satan loves to attack after a victory because you let your guard down. And I did. I let my guard down. And boy, I paid for it. But praise God, he never gave up on me. And I'm just telling you today, you may say, well, I'm not experiencing any difficulties. Well, praise God, don't let your guard down. Just know that if you're doing what God has called you to do, you will face difficulties. And you need to be ready. So the first lesson we learn is he attacks after a victory. The second lesson we learn is he wants you to believe God can't protect you. Look at verse 2. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Satan wants you to believe God can't protect you. He wants you to believe that you have no chance of success. Elijah just experienced a great victory, and now one woman is chasing him out of town. One woman is frustrated with him, and she's calling out words and saying, you will be dead by tomorrow. He thought he had won. He thought he had changed the hearts of the whole land of Israel, that they were ready to worship God now. But one woman would not change her mind, and one woman chased him out of the city. I think about Numbers chapter 13 and 14. When the 10 spies went to the land that God had promised them. Here's the land. This is what I promised you. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came back and said, you know what? It sure is. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. It is plentiful. It is beautiful. It is exactly what God said it was going to be. But there's enemies all around. And we're like grasshoppers in their sight. We can't win. That's exactly what the enemy wants you to believe, that you're like a grasshopper, that God has no thoughts towards you, that God doesn't care about you, that God can't protect you. But I'm here to tell you, my God is greater than the enemy. My God can defeat the enemy every single time, and it doesn't really take much from him. My God is so much stronger than the enemy that my God can protect you no matter what you're going through. But the enemy wants you to believe God can't protect you. And Joshua and Caleb knew the truth about God. And when Joshua and Caleb stood up, they said, no, no, no. That's our land. We can take it. Let's go. We need more Joshua and Caleb's in the church today. That's what God has promised us. That's what God's going to give us. And I don't care what the enemy throws at us. We will win because God said so. I also think about Saul and his army as Goliath stood on the edge of war and taunted them for 40 days. Have you ever thought about that? That nobody ever stood up and challenged Goliath, not even Saul, who was head and shoulders above all his troops, which means he was that a lot taller, he was a lot bigger, and even he was scared. Every one of them, he went out there and Goliath taunted them every day, taunted them and mocked their God. God he mocked not only their God, but he, he mocked the people and he mocked Israel and he mocked everything about them. And every time they went out there and they would hear this giant, they would cower in their tents because they were afraid God couldn't protect them. And then one little shepherd boy shows up. He goes, who does this guy think he is? I love that story. Who does he think he is? Does he know who he's mocking? Man, I'll go out there and I'll whip his tail. I'm going to take a sling and I'm going to take some stones. And the thing is that Saul tried to put his armor on him. Saul tried to, to man him up and make him look like he was ready for battle. David didn't care what he wore. He just wanted to go out and win because he knew he had the victory in hand. 
The victory was right there for the taking. All he had to do was trust that God could protect him, and he knew he could. Everybody else cowered, but not David. I tell you, Satan wants you to believe God can't protect you. I think about the entire land of Israel in Daniel chapter 3. When King Nebuchadnezzar told him to bow down before the statue, and they all knelt without a question. Except for three guys. You know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Everybody else bowed down. The entire land of Israel was willing to believe that God couldn't protect them from the fire. They had never seen it before. Nobody had ever been thrown in the fire and lived. But these three guys, I love their faith. Oh, King, we believe our God can protect us from the fire. But I love this statement. But even if, even if he does not, I will not bow down. We will not bow down. God can protect me. Satan wants you to believe that God doesn't think enough about you, that God doesn't care enough about you. But the Bible makes it clear in the book of Psalms that it amazes me that God even has thoughts about me. God cares about me so much that he has collected my tears in a bottle, Psalms tells me. God cares about you, and God can protect you. Don't ever believe the enemy is victorious because he's not. He cannot succeed. He cannot win but that's a lesson you have to learn in the cave number three the enemy wants you to believe life isn't worth living look at verse four but he himself went a day's journey in the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die he said it is enough now lord take my life for i am no better than my father's this is a great prophet and he was ready to throw in the towel. God, if you're going to treat me like this, why don't you just kill me? You know, Elijah's not the only one to do that. You know, Moses in Numbers 11 and verse 15 did the same thing. God, if you're going to put me with all these grumbling people and you're going to continue to keep me before these people like this, why don't you just kill me? Do you know Job in Job chapter 3, even though a lot of people say, well, Job never, never sinned. No, he never sinned, but he did say, I regret the day I was born. I wish my mother had, been, had borne me and I'd have been stillborn. Do you know Jeremiah wished the same thing in Jeremiah chapter 20? A great prophet of God, he said, I just wish that they would have never chanted or never praised when I was born. I wish that I would have just died right then and there. Do you know that Jonah even prayed that God would kill him after he rescued Nineveh? Jonah prayed, God, I just want you to kill me. Won't you just take my life right now? I'm so mad. I'm so angry. You may say, well, I've never come to that point. Well, praise God, I'm glad you haven't. But a lot of people have. A lot of people have come to the end of their rope where they feel like the only thing that's left for them to do is just take it away. You say, have you ever had to talk to people like that? The answer is yes. I've had to talk to many people and try to talk them off the cliff. Many of people that were ready to commit suicide, and I sat there and I stay on the phone with them for hours trying to beg them that life is worth living. That John 10.10 10 says the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but God has come to give you life and give it to you more abundantly. It is the enemy that wants to take you down. It's the enemy that wants you to give up on life. It's the enemy that wants you to say it's not worth living. It's the enemy will lie to you. He will lie to you and tell you life's not worth living. We, we're dealing with an epidemic where there are more kids taking their lives now because of being bullied at school. We're living in a day and age where it seems like nothing is sacred anymore. 
It seems like we're living in a day and age where the enemy seems to be winning. And, and yes, the world is getting worse. But just because the world is getting worse doesn't mean we as Christians need to give up. We need to fight harder and stronger. And we need to get on our knees. You see, the enemy wants you to believe that life isn't worth living. I'll tell you, just before I came to Hillcrest, about six months before I came to Hillcrest... I looked at my wife and I said, I think I'm done. I think I'm done. I can't take it anymore. I can't take the constant bashing. I can't take the constant ridicule of my family. I can't take the constant torment. I love to preach. I love God's word. I know God's called me into the ministry. But I've spent a year and a half of being beat to death. I think I might look for something else. And praise God, he didn't let me give up. But I can tell you, I've had many a pastor friend that has given up. I've seen many a pastor give up on their church. Because let me tell you, church can be the meanest place sometimes. That's why I thank God for Hillcrest, because you're not like that. But I did, I almost just said, I'm done. I can't. I just can't take it anymore. But I always go back to the words of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 20, God's word was like a fire in my heart burning within. And I wanted to quit and he wouldn't let me. And I thought about the words of Paul. I want to get to the end of my journey and be able to say with Paul that I've kept the faith. I've finished the race. I've fought the good fight. Because I'm going to tell you, it is a fight and when you become a Christian. Because the enemy wants to take you down. He wants to destroy you. And he wants you to make you think that life isn't worth living. There are times where people have just come to a point where they're ready to give up. I'm here to tell you, don't give up because God loves you. Don't give up because we love you. In every instance of suicide, I want you to understand something if you're thinking about it. In every instance of suicide, you're not the one that hurts. Your family is. Every time I've had to deal with that, it tears families apart. Because every one of them second guesses. Can I tell you, one of my best friends in North Carolina killed himself. In fact, he had come and stayed with me and my wife for a couple of weeks when things were going wrong in his marriage. I'd stay up nights with him talking. We'd read the Bible together. We'd pray together. He went and stayed with my in-laws for a couple of months. Things were really difficult in their marriage. And one day, he just got down. And instead of calling me, he went to a hotel and he overdosed on heroin. It liked to have killed me for three months. Because the question I kept asking was, I'm not enough to help him. You see, Satan wants you to feel like life isn't worth it, that it's just better to give up, to quit, to give in, and he wants you to feel like that. But I'm here to tell you, if God has given you breath, live it to your fullest. Face the challenges you've got and don't do it alone. Fourth lesson we can learn is this. He wants you to believe God's treating you unfairly. 
That's one of the biggest problems that we face. God, you're treating me unfairly. Listen to what he says. I've been very zealous in verse 10. I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel, forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. God, I haven't. Why are you treating me unfairly? Why are you treating me like this? I'm going to tell you, one of the worst questions we can ever ask in the cave is why. You will not get an answer for it. You will not get an answer for it. I'm here to, you, you can ask why all you want. What you should be asking is this. What is it you're trying to teach me? God, what is it? Because here's the thing. I want to learn the lesson as soon as I can so I can get out of the cave. What are you trying to teach me? I don't like where I'm at. I don't like what I'm going through. I don't like what's happening. You're treating me unfairly. Cain thought he was treated unfairly too, right? When he made the sacrifice. In Genesis chapter 4, he brought to God whatever he wanted to give him. And God told him, he said, sin's crouching at your door, Cain. Be careful. Esau thought he was treated unfairly when his brother stole his blessing. But that wasn't his to begin with. And many of us say, God, why are you treating me unfairly? I hear this question all the time. Why do bad things happen to good people? I need you to get something straight. There are no good people. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you get anything better, if you get anything better, that's when you're treated unfairly. That's called grace. You're getting something you don't deserve. Because to be honest with you, God should have been through with all of us. He should have thrown us all out long ago. He should have been done with every last one of us. And I'll tell you, I'm, I'm right there. I'm at the top of the list. Satan wants you to believe that God is treating you unfairly. But it's not that God is treating you unfairly. I think about this in the words of Paul in Romans chapter 8. In verse 18, when Paul says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Yes, life is difficult down here. Oh, but there's coming a day. There's coming a day and we won't have any more difficulties. We'll not have any more problems. We'll not have any more pain. There'll be no more sin. And I can't, he calls them light afflictions. I don't know how he calls them light afflictions because they don't always feel that way. Lastly, the enemy wants you to believe you're alone. At the end of verse 10, Elijah ends with this. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. The enemy wants you to feel alone. You know, the Bible tells us in 1 Peter 5 and verse 8 that the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You know how a lion hunts? A lion hunts, they, their pride goes out. It's usually the lionesses. But they go out and they find a herd. And you know what they do? They, they go after the herd and they find that one that splits off on its own. And once the one splits off on its own, the entire herd goes after that one. They hunt their prey, splitting and separating them. That's exactly what Satan wants to do with us. Number one, he wants to separate you from God. 
He wants to get you alone and tell you that God's not there, that God's not present, that God doesn't want anything to do with you. He wants to make you feel alone. He wants to separate you from the church. He wants to get you away from God's people. He wants to get you out of church. Why? Because he doesn't want you to be encouraged. He doesn't want people lifting you up. He doesn't want people praying for you. He wants to separate you in such a way that you get out of the church and you blame the church for everything. But the truth is, it is Satan who's the one doing it. He's hunting us like prey and he wants to separate us. The Bible tells me in Ecclesiastes 4 that a threefold cord is not easily broken. Two are better than one. The idea is you can keep warm better with somebody else than by yourself. The truth is, is you can fight a battle better with somebody than by yourself. It's always funny to watch kids these days. When I was growing up, it was one-on-one. Now it's like pack on pack. You ever notice that? It's like no kid can do it themselves anymore. Not that I agree with it. But you think about it. When you've got other people beside you and behind you, you are stronger than when you're on your own. You absolutely feel like you can handle whatever the situation is that's coming your way. The devil wants you to feel like you can't stand He wants you to feel like you're all on your own. He wants to make you further and further into the pit where you feel like you can't come out. You need to understand, and we're going to see this in just a moment, you are not alone. The last four lessons we're going to look at come from God's provision. First, God provides necessary sustenance. Isn't it amazing? God baked all these loaves or gave him food and cakes to eat and drink. Gave him all this stuff that he needed to go 40 days. Could you imagine? Now, that's a meal right there. A meal that you can eat, and it will last you 40 days. But God provided the sustenance that Elijah needed for the journey because he knew what he needed. God provided for Abraham. God provided for Ruth. God provided for Esther. We can see the characters all over the Bible, how God provided for them what they needed at the time. God happened to put Ruth in the right field to meet Boaz. God happened to put Esther in front of the king so she became queen to save the people of Israel. Isn't it amazing? God never does anything by chance. He does it all with an intended plan. God always provides the sustenance you need. You may say, well, Brother John, I don't see it right now. I don't see how God is providing for me. I don't see how God is helping me right here in this moment. I've heard preachers make this statement, God will never give you more than you can handle. What book are they reading? Because it didn't come from this one. God will never give you more than you can handle. That's not true we can just ask paul that in second corinthians chapter 12 verse 7 unless i should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations a thorn in the flesh was given to me a messenger of satan to buffet me lest i be exalted above measure concerning this thing i pleaded with the lord three times that it might depart from me god i can't take it i can't stand it please get it out of my life and he said to me my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. God will never put more on you that he can handle. But he'll put more on you than you can handle so that you get on your knees before him. 
You see, God will provide the substance you need. God will provide himself. And that's the seventh lesson. God never loses power. God brought an earthquake. God brought a fire. God brought all these things, but then he spoke to him in a still, small voice. God showed he still has power. God never loses power. I love a song by Torrin Wills. It says he never lost a battle. (laughs) He never lost a battle, and he never will. Man, I think about so many of the battles that God fought for the people of Israel over and over again. I think about Abraham in Genesis 14. It was a time where Abraham, his nephew Lot, had been taken captive. Five kings fought against four kings. Now, you're talking about entire cities fighting against one another. Well, the four kings won, and they defeated, and they took Lot captive. Abraham went with 318 servants and beat four cities. I think about Hezekiah. As he stood out there and Sennacherib was out there with 185,000 soldiers ready to storm the gates and destroy the city. And all Hezekiah had was a prayer and a prophet. And the next day he wakes up and 185,000 are gone. Dead. And Hezekiah and his army never raised a sword. You see, my God never loses a battle. And he never loses power. It never removes any of his power from him. I I love the song that we sing. It's an older song. And I remember singing as a little kid, the blood will never lose its power. You know what that's talking about? The blood will never lose its power because it still saves. It still changes lives. It still changes the world. He's never lost a battle. The eighth lesson we need to learn is God provides his presence. God speaks to him in a still, small voice. In Joseph's case in Genesis, Joseph was there in the midst of being sold by his brothers Sold into slavery. Could you imagine being sold by your brothers into slavery after having your brothers talking about wanting to kill you? Sells them into slavery. He goes off into Egypt. He comes into a house and he seems to be building up his reputation and things are going well for him in Potiphar's house. And then the wife accuses him of rape. He gets thrown into prison in a foreign nation. Now he's not only been sold into slavery, he's now been in a prison in a foreign nation. Everything is going wrong for Joseph until God opens the door and brings him into the hands of, the, of Pharaoh. And he saves the land and he saves his family. And when his family finally comes to him and he has a chance to enact revenge on 20 years of difficulties that he faced, he has the chance to enact revenge. And he says this, God did it. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God provides his presence. Moses in Exodus 33, after the people of Israel had sinned, and God told him he would send his angel before him. Moses said, God, I won't go unless your presence goes with me. God sends his presence before us. God is in the midst of everything that we're faced with. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 13, 5, he'll never leave you nor forsake you. The Bible tells us in Psalm 139, verses 7 to 12, where can we go from his presence? To be honest with you, you can't go into heaven, his presence is there. You can't go into hell, his presence is there. You can't go into the sea, his presence is there. You can't go into the cave, his presence is there. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times, and he is always available to those who cry out to him. Even when you're sinking like Peter, God's presence is available. And lastly, God provides necessary truth 
verse 18. He says, yet I preserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. I want you to know God hears your prayer. And I want you to know that God answers your prayer and God speaks if you're listening. He answers Elijah on his question, I alone am left. And he goes, no, you're not. There's 7,000. I have a remnant. You are not alone. When you're going through a difficulty in your life, Satan wants you to believe you're alone. He wants you to count yourself out. He wants you to give up. He wants you to quit. He wants you to turn away from God. He wants you to be alone. He wants you to believe that you have no hope. But here's the thing. You are not the first person to go through what you're going through. There are others. They've been through what you've been through. They've stood where you've stood. They've hurt where you've hurt. Find those people with whatever you're going through. Find those people that can help you when you're going through the roughest time of your life. The people that truly can understand what you're going through, find them. Moses cried out to God. He said, take my life. And God gave him 70 elders. Job, when he cried out and said, man, I wish I'd never been born. God goes, were you there when I created everything? When Jonah cried out and begged God to kill him because he had taken away the little stump, the little, little vine that grew up above him, God goes, you care about that vine, but I care about the hundred and some thousand children in that city that don't know their right hand from their left hand. Sometimes God has to get just downright honest with us and tell us to suck it up. Sometimes God has to get downright honest with us and tell us to stop moping. He had to for me. There have been numerous times where God has told me, stop your crying, dry up the tears, and get up. I thought my dad was talking to me, but it was God. There have been times where God said, stop soaking. That's what Satan wants you to do. Remember where your strength comes from. Stop soaking in the chair and get on your knees. Stop trusting in your own strength and find strength in me. Stop doing it on your own and turn to me. That's what God wants us to do. Sometimes God just has to slap us around and say, hey, time for you to wake up, Christian. It's time for you to trust me again. I know you're going through a hard time. I know the enemy is attacking hard. I know the enemy is trying to tear you apart. I know the enemy is lying to you right now. He's come to steal and kill and to destroy you. I know he's coming to take you down. But take a hold of my hand and trust that I have more power than he does. Trust that I can get you through this promise, through these difficulties. Trust that I am there for you. I don't know where you're at this morning. I really don't. Well, I know we have some hurting families in here, and I promise you we hurt for you. The Bible says we rejoice with those who rejoice, and we weep with those who weep. And I promise you we have wept over the last couple of weeks. Just know you're not alone. Just know you have a church that loves you. Just know there are people here who care for you. But let me tell you something that's even better than that. You got a God who is thinking about you. You have a God who is speaking to you. And you have a God who has more power than this whole church has put together. And he will carry you through if you'll trust him. My Bible tells me in Proverbs 3 not to lean on my own understanding. 
You know what it means to lean on your own understanding? If I were to lean down, I'm not going to do it because I really don't want to pick myself up off the floor. If I lean on my own understanding, I'll fall right over. But that's not what I'm supposed to lean on. I'm supposed to lean on God. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. You see, our God has a plan. I don't know. Don't ask why. Just ask God, what do you want me to learn? And maybe in the midst of your sorrow, you'll find the arm of God put around your shoulder. And he'll hold you close. And he'll say this to you. I got you. He had you on the cross. And he's got you now. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't lose hope. Don't lose faith. And don't take your eyes off of Jesus. And don't you dare listen to the lies of the enemy. Don't you dare listen to him. Because he's nothing more than a liar. But our God is true. And he is faithful.